And uh, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and also a good and safe New Year. I always look forward to the first Sunday of the year because in our church, what I've done for a number of years is speak specifically to our church and to try to encourage you in your walk in Christ or to give you some needed um, admonishments or perhaps even warnings as we'll talk about today. And it's important for us as believers to know that as we approach this new year that there are going to be more challenges that we face even more than ever, especially as believers. What I'd like you to do to begin with is open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to be looking today at verse 13 through 17. I will not finish the text because I will finish it the next time I'm up here with you. Uh, But uh, we haven't finished it at our church either. And it wasn't intended to be finished in one sermon. The topic that I want to discuss with you today in the next time I'm with you is the topic of being ready or get ready. And you'll find out what I'm referring to in just a few moments. So just settle right there in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13 and following. Now it was 23 years ago that they were telling us that the world was going to fall apart. Do you remember that? It's called Y2K. Everything was going to shut down. It was going to be all over. The financial system was going to collapse. Businesses were going to go under. Who knows what was going to happen to the military systems of the world because all the computers were not prepared to handle the change of the date. According to what I was reading this past week to remind myself of this, that the dating system of most computers at that time were based on a two-digit system. So if you had a date in your computer like 1999, it would only register 99. The fear was that when it finally reached 2000, it would be 00 and the computers wouldn't know what in the world to do. There was a lot of discussion on that, and you remember a whole lot of talk about it. There was concern by financial experts and analysis that there was going to be all kinds of system system breakups and disturbances and breakdowns. The financial system was going to collapse. There was a lot of movement from the governments to try to thwart this. Millions of dollars were spent to try to stop what they believed to be was going to be a catastrophe IT software was developed to try to combat the problems, to work around and to squash the Y2K bug. According to one research firm, it was estimated that the global cost to fix the bug were going to be between $300 billion to $600 billion. While there really were few issues that most of us were aware of when January 1st, 2000 rolled around, Many believe that that was because there was already some prep work done by businesses and software companies and also governments. Others say that the whole issue and the whole problem was overstated and that it was never going to be as significant as they said it was going to be. Well, then just a little while later came the next problem. In 9-11, 2001, most of us in, these room, in this room, with the exception of the young children, can remember where you were, what you were doing, whenever you were told the news or you watched it happen on TV. Most of us were kind of concerned that there would have been an accident that occurred whenever one plane flew into one of the buildings in New York, but then ever we were watching the news 
and saw the second plane fly into the second building, we were like, something terrible is happening. We're under attack. It wasn't long after that that many men and women were ushered overseas to be engaged in one of the longest wars on a foreign land. Many of our men and women died, not only in the attacks, but also in the war afterward. And that wasn't the end of the last two decades. In 2008, Lehman Brothers Global Financial Services went belly up, which cascaded into a whole series of financial groups and institutions going broke and bankrupt. Many people lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their retirement. I remember on one occasion, a man that I knew who was in the building industry lost more than half of his retirement at that time. It was a bad time, no doubt. But again, that wasn't it. It wasn't over quite yet. By the time we reached 2019, some people in China came down with a sickness unlike anything they had ever seen before called the novel coronavirus, later known as COVID-19. It would infect the planet. Thousands would die, and we were, we were told to shut down, lock down, and mask up. Businesses were closed. Churches shut their doors. Sporting events were canceled. The 2020 Summer Olympics were postponed. Worse yet, the sad event was is that many family members were not able to see their family whenever they were fighting for the last days of their life during that tragic event. It was a very, very dark time. It was a very dark time and a fearful time. Depression and suicide skyrocketed during this time. But that was not all. It wasn't over yet. In the last two decades, we've seen the growth, the unprecedented growth of what is called the mega churches or the seeker-sensitive churches where doctrine is downplayed and more play is encouraged and entertainment is given, the dumbing down of doctrine and also the continuing escalation of apostasy is on a continual basis. Then we've seen the woke ideology of social justice and critical race come into our culture and find a home, and not only there, but also in two of the major denominations in our country, they both have found a home. This is tragic. We're beginning to see more and more churches and denominations and church leaders capitulate and compromise on some of the most basic moral and ethical issues talked about in the Word of God. This is very troubling, very troubling. The theme used to be years ago whenever the church was in its battle for truth, has God said? That was the time whenever we fought liberalism. And we fought the time when people were telling us that the Bible's not the inspired word of God or the miracles are not true or real. But that's no longer the battle. It's no longer has God said. The battle now is has God really said. Has God really said. The church that once was a pillar and the ground of the truth is now a crumbling and cracked edifice with little or no resemblance to the church of the earlier days. At the same time, in this most dangerous time, and really the most compromised time in recent history of the church, the church worldwide is facing some of the most unprecedented persecution that it's ever faced. According to one article, 340 million Christians worldwide have experienced high levels, or in some cases, extreme levels of persecution. In 2020 alone, 4,761 professing Christians were killed for their faith. According to one article, more Christians have died for their faith in the last hundred years than have in all other centuries combined. 
Newsweek, which I don't normally quote, but had it right when it stated on January 2018, the persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is worse today than at any time in history. In Egypt, some Christian Coptic women were targeted, kidnapped, and forced into the Islamic religion, sold into slavery, and sexually exploited and physically abused. Just last year, the drug cartels killed 23 Christian leaders in Mexico, four in Colombia, especially for their faith, for standing up against the cartel's cruelty and criminal activity in their country. And then in Indonesia, there was an Islamic family that launched a suicide bombing attack on three churches, killing 10 people and severely injuring 40 more. Additionally to that, in the Chinese government and in China, they have systematically attempted to destroy many of the church edifices and buildings in that area. One particular structure that was the largest church in China that would house as many at times of worship of 50,000 people was destroyed, and they continue to destroy churches today. In 2017 alone, the killings in Nigeria escalated more than 62%. And then also in southern Nigeria, a radical gunman attacked a church, killing 12 of its members and injuring an additional 18 in another state of uh, Nigeria called Kebi, church leaders were arrested and sentenced to three years in prison. Now, although many of those that I've just talked about may not necessarily be orthodox or they may not line up with our doctrinal statement, the issue is this. They identified as Christians. And as a result of that, they were targeted. That's important to keep in mind. We're not necessarily talking about doctrinal distinctives here, even though some of those I would not necessarily agree with, nor would I would agree that they had the gospel right. But the point is, is that they were identifying as Christians, and as a result of that, they were considered notable targets to be destroyed. And this is a tremendously troubling surge we see in the world today. That Christians more and more are being the targets of those who hate them. We know that some of the countries that come to mind where much of Christian persecution occurs is North Korea, China, and a large part of the Islamic nations. But for years, most of the persecution that we heard about, read about, or thought of was always overseas or over there and not here. In fact, just... On some occasions, we might hear of the rare event where someone was targeted or perhaps it was discussed on the news at least that someone had stood up against the removal of the Ten Commandments from a courtroom or a courtroom lawn. And then also there were the times you probably remember whenever there was the battles for the manger scenes when some couldn't handle that the baby Jesus was put in the public square. But for the most part, none of us were shot or beaten or jailed. Most of the times we were made fun of as fundamentalists or Bible thumpers. And that was really about it. But all that's changed. All of that has changed. We're in a total different world now. We're in a different culture, the new hostile world against the vocal Christian. In the last 15 years, the attempts to silence the Christian community is off the charts. It's coming from all different perspectives. We are in a different time, a different culture, and a dangerous season. A dangerous season. The years of parents raising an ungodly seed 
has finally sprouted and the plant has a lot of thorns and is deadly. The hatred for Christians, particularly in the Christian um, world that we are in, and the hatred for their doctrine is boiling over. All they need is an opportunity or a platform to speak up against the Christian world and they'll do so. I was told just a few weeks ago that um, persecution now that we see in our culture really is not so much about even identifying as a Christian or being a Christian, but really it's more about what you believe and what you say. That's what really matters. It's not because of the cardinal doctrines that we hold. Let me explain what I mean by that. People are not coming after believers because they believe in monotheism. They don't come after Christians because they believe Jesus is God. Or that Jesus is the only way. Or that salvation is apart from works. Frankly, they don't care. They could care less what you believe about your theology proper. Or how much you want to debate your eschatology. Or where you land on your soteriology. They don't care. But what they do care about is this. A license to sin. A license to sin. You can talk about your theology, you can talk about your systematic theology all day long, you can debate your views all you want, just don't tell me that a man can't marry a man, or that a man can't be a woman, or don't tell me that I can't kill my baby in the womb and also even after the baby's born, and now... More than ever, as we're seeing in our northern parts in Canada, don't tell me that I can't take my own life whenever I want to take my own life, even as a child. Don't tell me that you can control my body. My body is my body and my choice. I can do with it what I want to. I can, I can do to it what I want to, and I can do to it whatever's in my body. And they often quote, as you all know, don't judge me, lest you be judged. A text taken out of context out of Matthew 7, 1, and used often to try to eliminate the believer's responsibility to accurately judge and evaluate. So they're basically telling us to stay out of their business. They're basically telling us that whatever I do is my business. They're telling us that what I do with my body is my choice And you have no right to speak to me and tell me what is right and what is wrong. This is the line in the sand. This is the watershed issue that will and already has divided believers and divide churches and denominations. It has become the issue that the church will face in this next year and the years to come. Christians are going to compromise or not compromise. They're going to stand for the truth and be assaulted, lose their jobs, lose their positions, lose their income, lose their families, or they're going to compromise so that they don't have the problems that come with that. Just Friday, this past Friday, there was an article in the news of an outspoken singer who had made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ And she said because she had said that Jesus is real, that she had had the biggest backlash she's ever had of anything she's ever said. 
Jack Phillips, if you remember, was a baker who had been harassed for over a decade, bombarded by requests to make some of the most profane cakes. He was dragged in and out of court for simply trying to have a business that subscribed to Christian principles. Another lady was a florist. She eventually was forced into retirement because she also refused to compromise on her traditional Christian faith. Coach Joe Kennedy was fired for exercising his First Amendment rights to pray publicly. First Amendment rights were taken away from him. It took him almost seven years to fight in court to get the ability to do do so in fight of the persecution. As a result of the last events with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and even before that, whenever the rumors were spread about the Dobbs decision, the crisis pregnancy centers, many of them ran by believers and Christians, were being attacked, vandalized, firebombed, destroyed, just for standing for life. Just for standing for life. And even the campuses and colleges in our country and our public schools are getting attacked as well. Student groups like InterVarsity Press, they have also been kicked off of campuses. In one situation in New Jersey, a teacher was suspended for giving a student a Bible. Many Christian colleges themselves are in dire straits because they're facing the potential of being in a position where they're not able to be accredited or keep their accreditation because they have standards that are opposite of the culture are opposite of what we believe. Also, a Phoenix pastor was jailed for holding a Bible study in his home. The reason why he was put in jail is because according to the uh, building codes and the zoning requirements, he couldn't have that many people in his home. So they jailed him. And then even just last two weeks ago, December 13th, A school board meeting occurred where parents were demanding members to resign because they were tired of the constant influx of transgender ideology and to allow a man who claimed to be a woman to go into the bathrooms where the women were in a skirt and to assault the young women. And they were demanding that many of the members of the school board resign. And so one man stood up and spoke up and said... That this was immoral behavior that was against God's, quote, design and against, quote, the natural order. He went on to say the LGBT behaviors should never have been promoted, taught, or encouraged in the schools that you oversee. He went on and paraphrased the words that Jesus gave in the Gospels and said this, and I quote, If any man or woman causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to have a millstone put around their neck, and thrown into the lake. He went on to say, get back to reading, writing, and arithmetic, and quit grooming and pimping. As a result of his comments, it provoked a 19-year-old Loudoun County community organizer by the name of Andrew P. Honuck to start a petition banning hate speech, saying that this man was giving hate speech. By the time he had circulated the petition, he had 873 signatures to stop the man or any person, as far as that is concerned, from speaking up about biblical values in the school system. 
Now, you check out some of the most recent headlines that we see in the last couple of years. There are those like an elderly woman was shot while campaigning against pro-abortion facilities. A Christian family was ordered, put that in quotes, ordered to believe boys can be girls and vice versa. Christian teacher was fired for raising concern over the LGBT book reading for young kids. Walmart said that it's uncomfortable selling books that are pro-life. Crime against pro-life centers has become routine, one headline said. A federal judge ruled public prayers unconstitutional. Christian schools were attacked for posting standards of conduct. Biden's disinformation governance board targeted pro-life centers. The left wants the IRS to investigate tax-exempt status of religious organizations. A man who was in the Austin Fire Department was fired for his faith. And COVID rule-resisting Canadian pastor, you may have heard about, was jailed a number of times. And that's not to say what happened to a number of other churches that we are familiar with and pastors. Now, from my perspective and what I see in Scripture, frankly, I'm going to tell you something that may shock you. I don't believe this is going to get any better. I don't. Whatever your eschatology is, I don't believe this is going to get better. What I mean by that is this. This country is under judgment. It's under the judgment of God. And the church or churches are under the judgment of God. We're going to see more and more of this. We have been cooking this for years. And now the devil is delivering the dish. And we need to get ready, folks. As believers, we need to be prepared. We need to be able to handle this. And I'm not talking about beans and bullets. I'm not talking about being a prepper and storing up stuff for the economic collapse or whatever's going to happen. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being prepared spiritually for what's coming down your road to your family and to the local schools that you know around you. You need to be prepared. That takes us to our text. And our text is this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you, the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now this text gives us how we are to prepare our hearts and our minds for the coming intense persecution against the church. We need to do these things that Peter tells us here so that we can be prepared to handle one of the most difficult times the church is going to face, at least in America. And to begin with, I want to share with you a couple of points. I won't finish the sermon today because it won't take, it'll take me another time to do so. But let me begin by talking about the unexpected reaction, the first point. An unexpected reaction, verse 13. It says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? 
Now, to understand that statement, we have to back up a little bit. We have to understand the context that Peter is writing about. We are literally parachuting down into a book, and we're looking at one section of Scripture, and the majority of the theme that Peter is writing about is persecution. The believers were anticipating and going through some of the worst periods of persecution that they could experience at that time. And so Peter's writing to encourage them and to give them instruction on how to live in the context of suffering for the name of Christ. And here it is in verse 8, if we back up just for a moment to get the context here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Peter writes, now to sum up, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For, or because, the one who desires life, to love, and to see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." So Peter is saying the person who would respond to evil attacks by returning good or also turning away from evil and pursuing peace, the person who is willing to do good should expect a better life, more love, and good days. After all, here's his point, verse 13 now, after all, who will harm you if you become a person zealous of what is good? In other words, he brings up what many of us might call an axiom, a self-evident truth. We would expect that if you do good, good would be returned. If you're kind, you would expect kindness in return. If you do good to someone, you wouldn't expect to suffer from them or to be persecuted or hated as a result of it. That's what he's talking about here. This is a rhetorical question that is brought up and expects shock that someone would actually return evil or harm whenever someone did good. That's his point. And based upon our experience, right, in the justice system, we would expect the same. We would think that if someone does what is right and does what is good, that he would be returned with that same thing. Not the opposite, not that he would be harmed, not that he would be uh, persecuted or afflicted, the word, by the way, translated here, harm, comes from another word. It's associated with the word for evil. But here in this case, it has the idea of inflicting injury or physical harm or to injure someone in some way. It, as I said, came and is related to the word kakos, K-A-K-O-S, which is a word that refers to evil. And the verb generally denotes and implies real damage done to someone. Not necessarily just words, but real damage done to someone. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the verb occurs in the book of Acts as the oppression of the people of Israel by the Egyptians. It occurs also in Acts 12 and 14 and 18 that refers to the antagonism that grew against the church and the act of persecution that occurred and the vicious attitudes that were developed as a result of the church's existence. In other words, the hostility, the injurious actions that came the plotting and the scheming to destroy the church is what it's talking about here. Now, I do want to note this in verse 13. Whenever it says, and who is he who will harm you if you, in the King James and the New King James, it says, you who become followers of what is good. 
You say, why does it read different than the word zealous there? Because in the King James, which is also the New King James, that is a reading for what is called the textus receptus, or the received text. And in that particular text, it uses the word mimetai, which is the word we get mimic from, or to imitate, or to be a follower in that sense. And so that version has that point there as it is translated. But in verse 13, the other readings of the earlier manuscripts, which you get all your other modern translations from, it uses the word zelotes, which is the word we get zealous from, or zealot. Verse 13 would read this way, and who is there to harm you if you prove or become zealous for what is good? And zealous simply means this. It simply means deeply committed and enthusiastic. If you're a zealot or you're zealous, in the original text, you would have the idea, as one commentator said, the burning desire to do what is right. A burning desire to do what is right. It's not just thinking about it. You're really wanting to do it. You're zealous about it, and you're going to give your all to make sure that it happens. Or another way of saying it, you are eager to do what is good. You're working toward doing what is good. And this also kind of conveys what we would expect of a believer, right? I mean, a believer, because he knows the one that is good. He's been transformed and changed as a believer, as a Christian. He's been regenerated and made new. The Bible tells us that God has ordained us unto good works, and that we would do what is good, and we should be zealous for what is good. And that would be expected of all of us. And by the way, the word good here, agathos, very popular word in the New Testament, refers to inherently good. It refers to goodness or good actions or good deeds. It stands emphatically forward in the Greek text, meaning that it gets this emphasis there. In other words, the good works is what he's talking about that you're zealous over. That's what you're really after. And that's such an important thing to understand that, listen, even in a culture like Peter was writing to, it was expected that if you did good, you should be okay. Everything should be all right. But even in this violent culture in which we live today, we also believe the same thing, don't we? We think that if we do okay and we do good and we do what is right and we're kind to other people, that we shouldn't be harmed. We shouldn't be afflicted in the worst of ways even the worst of pagans know this and that was what his point is it's like this past christmas as we think about the holidays i mean there was a lot of good that was done right people give out gifts to one another there's opportunity to help the destitute and poor some do it in the name of christ some just do it in the name of christmas some just do it because they believe it to be good I know that recently, because of the cold weather, there have been opportunities for churches to help people who didn't have shelter. I even know of a good friend of mine who needed shelter, and they ended up having to go to a church to get shelter as they were away for Christmas on vacation. They ended up going during the worst possible storm, and they couldn't get to the top of the mountain where they wanted to go, so they ended up housing in a church. And the church opened the doors, let them stay inside so they wouldn't freeze to death outside. So that happens all the time. Churches do what is good. You do what is good. We all do what is good. Even the lost communities around us do good things. We know that. And Peter's point is it's, it would be abnormal, really, to think that you're going to get harm because you did what is good. It would be like you going out and giving a gift or helping someone in a need and they'd return injury to you. It doesn't make sense, does it? And that's his point, but, they, but he's, not, he's, he's not done. And that takes us to the next point, and that is the expected response. 
We see an unexpected reaction, but also now we see an expected response. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer, and that is what they call a first-class conditional sentence, the word if is assuming the reality to be true. In other words, you're going to suffer. We know that's going to happen. You could translate it since, but even since you should suffer for righteousness' sake. We want to stop right there just for a moment and look at that. He begins with the word but there, which is transition and really an antithesis of what he just said. Whenever you think that as a person doing good, he should never be harmed. But listen to me carefully. If you suffer for righteousness sake. Now, Peter did not promise in any way to his readers or the church that he ministered to that they would escape suffering. In fact, quite the opposite. The teaching of Jesus And also Peter's own personal experience. And because he knew the perversity of the human nature. Made him fully aware that there was the real potential to suffer for righteousness sake. That you could be persecuted. And that's the reason as I told you he wrote this letter to help and encourage the church. Just a couple examples of that in 1 Peter chapter 2 if you want to look at it. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 19 says. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief suffering wrongfully for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently in other words if you get out here and you do what's wrong and you get beaten for it there's no praise in that you're getting what you deserve but then he goes on and says but when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently listen to this this is commendable before God for it is for to this you were called that is suffering Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Then also 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. In other words, it is common as a believer to suffer for righteousness' sake. That's his point. He says... But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter wrote much about this. There's many texts in this book that I could refer to that he referred to a suffering for the church. Jesus also did. Jesus talked about this in the very first sermon that he gave that is written down for us and recorded in Matthew 5.10. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, he says. Later on in chapter 10 of Matthew, he says, you will be brought before talking about his disciples you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them who are and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how you are to speak, for it will be given to you at that hour what you should speak. 
for it will be not you who are speaking, but the spirit of your father who speaks through you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child and child will rise up against his parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Paul also talked about this kind of persecution in Acts 9, 16. As God told him, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You get two gifts whenever you come to Christ. You get faith to believe and you get the gift of suffering. That's what you get with becoming a Christian. Now look back at verse 14 again in our text here in chapter 3. Peter says, but even if you should suffer or since you should suffer, for righteousness sake. The word suffer, pasco in the Greek, is used in a general way. Most of the time it doesn't refer to good or, or ill or evil. But in most cases it refers to something that is bad. There are some cases wherever it refers to something pleasant that is to be expected. And that is the case here. It's a form of suffering that is not good. As we noted with the word that is translated earlier, harm that it has the idea of some injury or some affliction that is brought on you because you name the name of Christ or that you do what is good. And also it's present tense, which means this is something that is expected over and over again as a believer. But what I want to really zero in on right now and really spend a little time here is this. The word in the text for righteousness sake. What does he mean by that? We just heard it a number of times by our Lord himself. He refers to that. But is there a difference? Is there a difference between good and righteousness here? Because later on he uses the same word good again, agathos. It's almost like the word righteousness is sandwiched between the two words of good. The word translated here righteous is one that is very familiar to the Bible student. It's used all throughout the New Testament to refer to what is right, primarily in this context, to doing what God requires or to obey his word or to obey his commandments. It's more than just good in general. It's doing what is right. And it's not referring to that positional righteousness that we all have in Christ. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about actual, actual following of Christ, obeying Christ, honoring Christ with your life and your words. But is there a difference in this text between what is good and what is righteous? And I would say, first of all, generally no, but specifically yes. And you'll understand what I mean by that in just a moment. And the way to understand it would be this. We would all agree that the Salvation Army does what is good, right? They do good things, right? And this will be a little harder for you guys, but we would also say that the Mormon church does good things. We would even go as far as to say that the Roman Catholic Church does good things. We could even say this, that lost people who don't know Christ can do good things. We would say that in a general way, right? But we would not say that specifically. Why? Because we know that the Bible teaches us that no one who is without Christ can do genuine righteousness. In fact, the Bible even says that the, the righteousness of the lost person is According to God's word, filthy rags in his sight. There's literally nothing that a person that is lost can do that pleases God. Romans chapter 8 clearly says that. 
But in a general way from humanity's perspective, yes, they can do good things. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I would rather have a person who was lost get me out of a burning house than a person who was a Christian who would debate whether to go in. Wouldn't you? And so the point is, it doesn't really matter about that. But I believe whenever Peter gets to this word, he's zeroing in on something that is so important. As he just said in verse 13, the axiom was what? Listen, if you do good, you expect what in return? Good. You don't expect harm. We don't expect it. But what happens if you change it? What happens if now it's no longer just general good things like all of us can do, but now it becomes righteousness? righteousness and the bible seems to make a distinction here and what i mean by that is this kind of righteousness and listen to this carefully so you can understand where i'm going with this this kind of righteousness is not just general righteousness this righteousness is in a unique way attached to christ and it's attached to his word and it's attached to the scripture and it's attached to the gospel that's what he's talking about Not every person can do righteousness or please God. Only the believer can do what is truly righteous in the sight of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because he's obeying from a pure heart what the word of God says. Let me show you what I mean. Like, for instance, biblical righteousness is uniquely tied to Christ and the law of God in Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Not goodness, but righteousness. And then also 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee youthful lust, but pursue righteousness. And again, that has the idea of pursuing the law of God and obedience to the law of God and not pursuing what is contrary to the law of God, which would be lust. First Timothy 6 11 says, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. To make it more specific, Hebrews 1 9 says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Lawlessness comes from the Greek word anomios, which means acting as if there is no law, no law. When someone lives as if there is no law, like much of our culture is today, they are not doing what is righteous in obedience to the law. We find that used over in 1 John 3, 4 and following. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. And then in verse 7, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. It seems like it's so clearly tied to the law of God, the word of God, and Christ, this kind of righteousness. Now, I may be slicing the pie a little thin here to prove my point, but I believe there is a point here to be made. And what Peter has in mind is this. It's one thing to do generally good. Because, listen, none of you in here are going to be persecuted or afflicted or harmed if you deliver food to a poor person. It's not going to happen. If you go out and you find destitute people and you give them housing, nobody's going to harm you, hurt you. If you do anything to help hospitals or people in need or whatever, that's not going to be a problem. The point I'm driving at, if all Christians are guilty of is just doing good deeds like helping the poor or building hospitals or delivering food or handing out gifts 
at Christmas or being good employees or not drinking, not smoking, not cursing, being faithful to your wives and your husbands, taking care of your families, going to church, tipping the waitress well after she's done a good job serving you, helping your neighbor recently, as some of you probably ended up doing, fixing a broken pipe, right? Nobody cares about that. Who cares? In fact, if we can get more people like that in our neighborhood, wonderful. Let's get a whole bunch of people together that want to help everybody, right? That's paraded even in the secular culture over and over again. But let me tell you something that's totally different. It's whenever you begin to say something, when you start speaking up and you start saying what God says, that's what gets us in trouble. Not just doing good, but doing those things which are righteous and saying those things which are righteous, which are tied to Christ, to his word, and to scripture. The problem comes, frankly, whenever we open our mouths. That's when the problem comes. If we all will just keep our mouths shut, we won't have too much persecution at all. You see, that's the way it is. That's the way the Bible seems to communicate it to us. Many times, I'm sure, you've had opportunity to speak up whenever you were at a job or at a family situation and you heard something totally contrary to what the Bible says. Opposite of what God's standards are. And instead of speaking up and saying something, you kept your mouth shut so that you wouldn't cause trouble or take the peace or suffer for it, right? All of us have been guilty of that at some time or another. To look at it another way is like this. When Jesus Christ came as a babe in a manger, nobody really cared. Nobody got upset. Herod didn't want it because he thought his kingship was threatened, but that was about it. But beyond that, whenever Jesus was growing up as a boy and was working with his father Joseph there, there was no problems there. Nothing recorded about any trouble, any problems, any persecution, any harm, any affliction at all. Even by the time Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, if you remember, to fulfill all righteousness. Even at that time, there was no problem, no concern, no affliction, no harm. It was only until Jesus opened his mouth and started talking. That's when all hell broke loose. In fact, if you remember in Matthew 5, it says this, and seeing the multitudes, this is the first recorded sermon. It says that Jesus seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, he sat down as a rabbi, a rabbi would do as a place of authority. He would sit down to teach. We stand up, they sat down. They understood what was better. Anyway, in verse 2 it says, Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, now, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, if you understand what the Sermon on the Mount is teaching, you can understand why that catapulted everything into a situation where he was going to be attacked. Because what Jesus did then is he literally confronted the hypocrisy of the nation of Israel, their religious system, their authority, called them out on it, showed them where they were breaking the law of God, showed them how they had violated the scripture over and over and over again. They had broken the word of God by their religious hypocritical system. So men got mad, stones were picked up, demons were raging, and the religious plot started early on to kill him, to get rid of him, all because of what he said. In fact, Jesus, as we all know, was the most compassionate, kind, 
loving, long-suffering, patient person that ever walked on this planet. He did more good than anyone has ever done on this planet. Because his good was eternal. I mean, think about it. John says that if all the miracles had been recorded, the world couldn't contain what he did. We just have a glimpse in the Gospels of all the good that he did. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He took the leper who had lost his limbs, his arms, and his feet, and his nose, and his lips, and created new hands, feet, lips, and ears, and noses. He fed 25,000 people twice. I mean, it's an amazing thing to consider what Jesus Christ did beyond the fact that he raised people from the dead. What better good thing can you do than go to a suffering, grieving family and resurrect their loved one from the dead? He did so much good, so much good. But in John 10, 27, it says that whenever Jesus spoke there, he said these words, he spoke again. He said, I and my father are one. And then it says they took up stones to kill him. You say, why? Well, Jesus asked the same question. He said this, many good works I have shown you from my father, which I just referred to. For which of those do you stone me? Jesus said. The Jews answered and said to him, for a good work, we do not stone you. Did you get that? For the good work, we don't stone you. We're fine with that. Heal them all. Wonderful. Feed them all. We're great with that. Do that. But for what you said, blasphemy. They called it blasphemy. And you make yourself God. That happened again in John 5. Same thing. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. He did it again in John 8, 58. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him again. Why? Because of what he said. But that's not all. He wasn't just clarifying his deity, which they had a whole big issue with. But it was more than that. And here's a verse to remember. This is really the issue. John 7, 7, which says, the world hates me, Jesus says, because I testify that its deeds are evil. That's why the world hates him. He points out the evil. He calls sin, sin. He did what most preachers won't do today. He did what most believers won't do today, is to call out the evil and to make it very clear that it is evil. That's why, by the way, I believe we're in such serious trouble right now because Christians have kept their mouth shut. Listen, we don't have the problem with numbers. We have the problem with people talking. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to be afflicted. So we hush whenever opportunity goes. When those that are anti-God, anti-Christ, when those that are pro-abortion, pro-LGBT speak up and herald forth and spew forth their evil, Christians hush. And it's sad to think of it that way. But it's so true. It's obvious. It's absolutely obvious. John MacArthur said on one occasion, sometimes we don't make the gospel clear enough for the non-elect to reject it. And I thought, he's right. But what we could do is take that phrase he just said and 
kind of change it up a little bit and say it like this. We don't make, as believers, we don't make the word of God clear enough for the world to hate us. Oh, we'll talk about all the good stuff and what Jesus is. And we love talking about Jesus as a babe in a manger. And we believe that as long as we communicate that, everybody's going to come running to Christ. No. You've got to understand that we have to tell them what that man said when he grew up. What he said throughout not only the Gospels, but the rest of the Word of God, because it's all his Word. It's all his Word. Well, let me just help you out a little bit before I close out tonight, because I don't want to leave you with all just the discouraging news, but to begin to look at what we should do and how we should handle this ongoing and escalating hostility that's coming against the church, the true church of Jesus Christ. So if you're going to be willing as a believer to be courageous and to stand up for the truth and to speak forth the truth, and by the way, I want to add this in there, with love, with grace, we're not just to be arrogant people out there. We need to speak with love and with grace. Remember that all the people out there that deny what you believe, you were once there. You were once blind. You were once dead in your sins. And it's only a, because of the grace of God and the regenerating work and power of the Holy Spirit that you are where you are today. We speak in love because we don't change minds. We don't change hearts. Only God does. We give the truth. We give the truth. So if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to stand up and be ready and prepared in this culture in which we live, and understand that as a result of you standing up for the word of God and clearly expressing what God says, you need to have some things in mind. You need to have some things in place to be prepared for that. And they are given to us in verse 14, 15, and 16 and following. But to begin with tonight, let me just remind you of a few things. And I'm going to close with this one. The first thing you need to remember, and this is a hard one, this is a hard one. Remember that you are blessed whenever you suffer for righteousness sake. And that's totally contrary to everything you hear in our culture, right? I mean, that's the worst thing you can think of, right? Much of Christianity today is a sloppy mess, really, an emotional mess where everything's about making you feel good and we don't want you to feel bad and we don't want you to feel horrible and we want you to have a successful life and all of those kinds of things. But the Bible says that if you are suffering for righteousness sake, here it is, you're blessed. In fact, the word blessed there in that text is by itself in the Greek. It's an adjective. It could be used as an exclamation which basically means that you are suffering for righteousness sake. And then in big, bold letters, blessed. You're blessed. You say, how in the world can a person be blessed if they're suffering for righteousness sake? Well, there's a number of ways to understand it. First of all, the word translated here, blessed, is the word makarioi uh, or makarios, depending on the usage of it. But in Matthew 5, and following where you have what we call the Beatitudes. There you have that word blessed over and over again. Many just translate it happy. That's a very shallow understanding of the word blessed. All right? That's just a very emotional response of the word blessed. It's much, much deeper than that. I mean, think about the text over in the Psalms. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. What do you think? Oh, he's just so happy. 
Well, I'm sure he is, but this is not going to be a happy event. If you're going to suffer and be afflicted for righteousness sake, there isn't a whole lot of happy, happy going on, right? So what does he mean by that? Well, primarily what he has in mind behind all of that is you are highly privileged as a follower of Christ, listen to this, to follow in his footsteps. That's one thing behind the word. But also the word makarios, according to a scholar, uh, his name was Spirios Zotiates, and he was a Greek himself, and he knew the Greek language very well. And he said that the word blessed here, translated in Matthew 5 and other portions of the word of God, not only means in the sense of highly favored or also highly privileged and could create joy, but behind that word is indwelt by God. That the one that is truly blessed is the one who has God. Well, better yet, God has him. So whenever it reads like this in Matthew 5, 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It means, yes, clearly there is joy there, but more importantly, highly privileged are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs emphatically is the construction for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that persecution is a proof of salvation? It is. Persecution is a proof of salvation. Now, I know that we've lived in pretty much a climate where we have been tolerated for the last few years, but that's coming to an end. That's coming to an end. And so all of these churches that are filled up with nominal, quote, nominal Christians are going to find out real quick like what true Christianity really is. Because the Bible says this, and I don't know if you remember this text. Jesus said this, if you deny me before men... I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Now, that's not a tit for tat. You deny me, I'm going to deny you. No, that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is this. If you are the kind of person that in the most hostile context, you will deny me, you're not mine. That's sobering. That is sobering. I was talking to a church in Florida just recently. I was down in Jacksonville, and we were eating somewhere. I was with my mother, and there was a group of men who had, uh, met there beside us and I could hear them talking I knew they were part of a church so afterward I struck up a conversation with one of the pastors in that church and I said so where do you pastor at and he told me it was a school down the road where they had a church I said oh I've heard of that church before I said you guys are pretty large aren't you he said well we used to be before COVID I said well how many were you running before COVID he said over a thousand I said well how many do you have now 400 where did the other 600 people go where did they go I mean, I don't understand that. I mean, is there just a bunch of surface stuff floating around out there because the entertainment was great and the music was good? But when things got a little bit difficult, we all bail and all run? That's happened more and more. Listen, whenever you are persecuted for Christ's sake, the Bible says that theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. But not only that. Those who are blessed or indwelt by God, according to Matthew 5, 11, says, Blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted, and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Listen to these words. Rejoice, he says, and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. See, too many believers live for the here and now, right here. That's what we live for. Everything, we pour our money into this place, we pour our time into this place, we pour our investments into this place. 
Whenever we die, we will all of our junk to the next person so he can pour all of his time into this place and all of his investments in this place. And the Bible doesn't have us doing that. We are aliens. We're passing through. We're sojourners. We're living here very temporarily. And everything that we're doing is for the future eternal kingdom. And whenever you go through the suffering that all of us will eventually experience more and more as the time goes on, we should always keep in mind that we are the blessed people because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. We are counted as highly privileged ones who have the God of the universe living inside of us. And we should rejoice, as Jesus said, and be exceedingly glad for suffering. Because there's a great reward for those who follow Christ faithfully. So the first thing to remind yourself of as you go into this time period of persecution is this. Remember that you are blessed of God. You've got to keep that in perspective. The next time I'm with you, we're going to talk about the last three. That will help us out a lot, I'm sure. Well, let's take a moment now and change our perspective as we think about the Lord's Supper tonight. I'd like to share just a moment from a passage that I often go to uh, that is such a real rich passage in 1 John. And in 1 John, G, uh, John rather, is talking about the true believer's attitude towards sin. One thing we know about the Lord's table is there's represented there blood and the body of Christ. Both are given for the purpose of sin. In other words, the reason why Jesus came and was born as a babe in a manger and grew up to become a man and eventually crucified on a cross in a real body was so that he could die in our place as our substitute. His blood was shed, which is, was a very, uh, very, very graphic way of showing the life of Christ being poured out on our behalf. The body of Christ, which was a body that had been lived in perfect righteousness to the law of God and was not deserving of the death that he died, died in our place with our sin being put on him. But if a believer understands that, then he understands the issue of sin. And in 1 John, listen to what it says. A verse I often go to is this in verse 9, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. So if we are confessors, that's the idea of the verb there. If we're continually confessing our sins, which is really characteristic of a Christian. If you're a Christian, you understand your sin problem. And the more you grow in Christ, the more severe the sin problem becomes to you. And so there's not a one-time confession, not a momentary confession, but a life of confession. You're confessing sin, confessing attitudes that are wrong, confessing evil thoughts, con confessing actions that are wrong. And so in this text, he says, if we are confessing our sins, Jesus Christ is faithful and he's just, he's righteous to do so, to forgive us of our sins, all of our sins. And will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That verse is in between two verses. Verse 8 and verse 10. Both of those verses deal with a person who denies their sin. Which is something a Christian would not do. Verse 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, 
In that text, he's talking about someone who would deny their sin nature. If we say that we have no sin, listen to what it says. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, which is another way of saying you're not a believer. In verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, here's a person who not only doesn't deny his, he doesn't necessarily deny his nature, but he says, I don't sin. You ever heard that before? People say, well, I don't sin, I make mistakes. You're not a Christian. If you don't believe you have sinned, you don't need a redeemer. If you don't believe you have sinned, you don't need forgiveness. You don't need Christ. So he goes on and says in that same text, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, that is God himself, a liar. And his word is not in us. The difference is the confessor. If you are a confessor of your sin, there's evidence of regeneration in your heart. The Spirit of God exposes that to us. I don't know about you, as I, as I go through what I've even read this, this past uh, Lord's Day and studied and prepared for and preached to you tonight, if you can go through that and you think you've walked away from there without ever being ashamed of Christ, I think you and I need to have a conversation. All of us have failed there. And we need to confess our sins to the Lord. And ask God to give us the courage to stand for Christ. Listen, it's not bad yet. It's not bad yet. It can get a whole lot worse. Many believers overseas do suffer and die for their faith that they confess. And I pray to God that he will enable his church to be faithful to his word and be courageous. And as a believer here tonight, as we take the Lord's Supper, let's confess our sins to the Lord. Let's get our hearts ready to receive the Lord's table and to honor him in all that we do. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, tonight we thank you for the word that you give to us, the clarity of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for its great work in our heart in sanctification, for purging out the evil. We thank you, God, for the work of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us him to work in our lives. And Lord, for the times that we have not been willing to stand for you and to speak on your behalf please forgive us for being ashamed of christ lord help us to be courageous help us to be filled with your spirit at all times to speak a word to speak your word to speak to this culture and to these who are so many around us that are lost that need jesus christ give us words of grace and love clarity conviction Lord, I do pray that you would help us to remember that we are blessed as your people. To have you in us, and us in Christ. And Lord, as a result of that, we are blessed. We are highly privileged to suffer for your sake. Help us, Lord God, not to falter or to fail, but to be faithful. And as we receive the Lord's table tonight, we thank you, Lord God, for the juice that represents your blood that you shed on behalf of of your people for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the body that's re represented here by the bread 